Kay. Welcome to the latest United podcast for another very special edition and an absolute honour to have another Manchester United legend on the podcast. Um, doesn't need any introduction, but it is obviously the introduction of the podcast, so I might as well in- introduce him. Um, the legendary Lou Macari. How are you, mate? I'm fine, thank you. No, How are you good. in Australia? Yeah, well, we're just discussing there the weather. It's starting to look a little bit nice where you are, and here in Australia, it's starting to get a little bit cooler. So, um, I think we're trading places a little bit. But um, before we start, like, we'll get into your career at United and Celtic, and sort of reminisce about sort of sort of better times for Manchester United, and obviously your playing career. But before we do start, I'm sure a lot of our listeners do listen to the official Manchester United podcast, and I'm not just saying it because you're on the podcast, Lou, but Probably my favourite ever Man United podcast was your one you did with David May, Helen Evans and Sam Homewood. An absolute brilliant chat. It was a real tearjerker towards the end, but your story throughout your time at Manchester United, joining United was um, a very special story. So after everyone listens to this podcast, please go back and listen to Lou McCurry's chat on the official Man United one because it was a very special one. But one of the main things, our chairman from the Man United Supporters Club here in New South Wales. He's back in Sydney. Well, at the time of recording, he's still in quarantine. But a couple of weeks ago, he visited the Macari Centre. And um, he, he only had positive things to say about it. Absolutely loved the work you were doing there. So to start off the podcast, before we get into everything Manchester United and your career, if you just want to tell our listeners in Australia a little bit, a few things, a little bit about the Macari Centre, the inspiration behind it, the work you're doing, and also maybe just in the past 12 months, like like anyone and everything, obviously the effects of COVID and how that's affected things. Uh, well, I started about four and a half years ago. Um, I live in Stoke-on-Trent, which is in the Midlands. I just automatically expect everyone in Australia to know where Stoke-on-Trent Stoke is, but obviously they don't. We're in the Midlands of, of, of Great Britain. Um, I was Stoke City manager back in the 90s. Had seven years there and had a great time. We had some good results, which obviously is the main thing. If you are a manager, that helps with some good results. And I took to the place and the people who live in Stoke on Trent, I think it's fair to say they took to me. And uh, I've stayed there ever since. Before that, I lived in Manchester. Obviously, when I came to England as a Manchester United player, I lived in Sale, which is not that far from Old Trafford. But uh, I'm now in Stoke on Trent and simply sitting at home one night reading the, the local newspaper. There was a big debate on with, with the local councillors how many homeless people there were in Stoke and Trent. Some people were saying, the party that was in power, um, their councillors were saying there's, there's a handful, 10 or 12 at the most, and um, the other party was saying there's hundreds. So I, just out of curiosity, I jumped in my car, I went up to the city centre and parked my car, got out, and immediately I got out of the car, I, I met 12 homeless people that were sleeping in doorways and asked them why they were there, did they not have somewhere else to, to go? And the answer was they didn't have somewhere else to go. That's why, they, obviously, they were in the doorway. And um, I said, right, if I, if I found you a building, um, would you come and stay with me? And they said they would. So the next day I went to the local council and I knew a few of the councillors from my days as manager of Stoke and some of them back then were, were journalists who reported on the game. So I got to know a lot of them quite well. I'd asked them if they could sort me out with a building that the council owned and they'd closed the door and they've got the keys. 
and I'll open the, the building the next day and over a period of time I'll, I'll get beds in and I'll get food in I'll get the food in immediately I'll get some clothes as well and I've got a key to a building that at the time we just accepted that because that's all there was but as time went on we just found it was probably an unacceptable building to have in terms of it didn't have enough in it that we could uh, turn it around and make it everything that we wanted to make it so I took the building uh, in we went and the first night we had 12 people came second night there was a few more and it grew and it grew by the night and by the by the week and um, eventually we had about 38 40 people there looking after them feeding them clothing them and as I said the roof over the head which was which was all I knew I could do knew nothing about homelessness, knew nothing about homeless people, didn't really know how unfortunate you sort of have, you've got to be to get there. Or it can be through their own through their own doing to get themselves into a situation. But my, my main aim was to was to help them and try and get one or two that I could back on back on track, back into some sort of way of life that would um, would be certainly better than the way of life that they had. Um, so four and a half years later, we moved. We moved into a huge warehouse, which the Mark came down to have a look at, and he was down here and and was was pleased with what we were doing. Um, so we've got forty eight people now, and whew, well, forty eight homeless people is a lot more difficult than looking after a, a football team if you're the manager. It's, it's a lot more difficult job than all he's got. Let's put it like that. <laughs> um, but we're doing it and, and we're still doing it and we'll continue to do it and try and help as many people as we can. Well, it's, it's inspirational. Just what you said there of sort of beforehand, sort of not knowing much about homeless people. Just from a personal point of view, over the past couple of weeks, a family friend of myself and um, mum and dad, good friends with my mum and dad, found himself in a bit of a hole in the past six months and he's sort of been bouncing around, kicking along, sort of staying where he can here and there. And he got to the stage and unfortunately, through his own undoing, through a lot of alcohol, found himself for about two or three nights homeless. He was on the street. Um, everyone did as much as they could for him, and he just found himself homeless. Now, he's back on his feet a little bit now, which is good. But as I said, I never really gave it too much thought because, okay, you see homeless people, you see here or there, but when it affects you personally, you said, oh, God, what it was heartbreaking those two or three nights thinking that he was on the street. And um, as you say, that's just one person. You've seen 12 people, now 48 people, it's millions of people around the world, which is just frightening. So the inspirational work you do, um, just in your own time and off your own back. Um, we've said this before, all these Manchester United legends and Manchester United greats, us here on the other side of the world, we're, we're, we almost treat you like family. We're extremely proud of the work you continue to do. It's, um, yeah, as I said, inspirational, but we will get on to football things. And um, for some of our younger listeners, a few people have sent in one or two little questions and topics um, for those of you who didn't see you play throughout your playing career, uh, one of the questions was, can you describe or maybe sort of liken yourself to one of the current players, or maybe not even a current player, but a modern player that some of the younger fans would sort of be accustomed to? And please, on this podcast, you don't have to be humble. You can say a mix of Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. And uh, Oh, no, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely wouldn't say that. Um, um... I like. I played in midfield. I like to get forward. Uh, I had plenty of energy. So um, Bruno Fernandes has come along, and 
he likes to get forward. He likes to get in the box. He likes to score goals. He's got plenty of energy. So I'll, I'll stick with with Fernandez at the moment, and I won't go back in time to any of those players that you were talking about. Um, um, it was different back then. I mean, that's unfortunately it's the most difficult thing you do when you're doing a podcast or or where you're even live somewhere is to try and inform the younger generation how different things were back then to the way they are now. And I don't think there's many great things about the way the game is now because I played in a, in a time when um, there was lots of great things. There was lots of great players and, and George Best in particular. We've never seen a player, not just at Old Trafford, but we've never seen a player in, in Britain as good as George Best since George disappeared whenever it was 19... Uh, when I went to Old Trafford in 73, he was still there. But then after 1973, his career nosedived and it went from sort of bad to worse. And even if George was with us today, I'm sure I'm sure he would admit that because this is the, the best player I've ever seen um, in, in terms of scoring goals, uh, bravery, strength, power, beating people, he could beat people for fun, he went past them, he, he beat five or six at a time. Um, so he was he was the best I've seen, but something went badly wrong, because when he left Old Trafford, it's hard to believe I'm talking about who I think was the best player I've ever seen, ends up in non-league football in, in this country, because he ended up with a guy called Barry Fry, who not many people in, in Australia will know about Barry Fry. Barry Fry was a non-league manager at the time, and he took George... And he played for Manchester United, Barry Fry, back in his time. He took George to the non-league club and George played there. Then George went to America. And it was America at a time when football hadn't got off the ground. It wasn't really... It was pretty poor, to be honest with you. And um, I saw George in America and he, and he was completely out of his depth. He was far... Uh, far better than any any player that played in America at the time. But he'd lost his way by then, and he, he started drinking. And again, to you know, never mind the young ones, there'll be a lot of Manchester United supporters probably won't realise that when George was at Manchester United, drink wasn't an issue. It's a bit like your pal you're talking about. Uh, as things went on, things got worse and all of a sudden. And that's what happened to George. Drink wasn't an issue. So this all, you know, people have got in their head about George because he died uh, with alcohol being involved. Um, they all thought that he was coming in every day training and uh, you could smell his breath that he'd been drinking. No, that wasn't George. George was a great professional. He was one of the best trainers at Old Trafford, if not the best. And... Um, which is the reason why he's up there in that statue outside Old Trafford. For any of your your supporters club that have not been, there's a statue outside Old Trafford, best law in Charlton, and it's up there for a reason. It's up there because those three, and I did play with George as well, and I played with Dennis with Scotland and the Manchester United. Uh, these were, without question, the three of Manchester United's greatest ever players. George Best... Bobby Chart was incredible, so enthusiastic. I got to Old Trafford my first day's training, and George, sorry, Bobby was, I think Bobby was 36 years of age, and I arrived from Celtic in 1973, and he was the first player out on the, the training ground. He was the last player to come in. Uh, he, had, he had unbelievable 
again, another player from that era that had unbelievable strength. The ability wasn't questioned. Um, you just need to look at him in the World Cup final for England. He was here, there and everywhere. Tremendous shot, tremendous professional. Dennis was a great centre-forward, very aggressive for a centre-forward, which there was lots of aggressive centre-forwards back in the 70s and 80s, and, and Dennis was certainly one of them. So um, that's the reason why they have the statue outside Old Trafford, because because those were, were you know three of the, the best players that Manchester United have ever had. Well, you just mentioned there, obviously, the United Trinity, that famous statue. But um, and as great as those players were, none of those players have a fish and chip shop outside Old Trafford. <laughs> so um, the, a statue is one thing. That that is one thing that's great to have. Yeah. But I think a fish and chip shop is of, of the same significance. So if you just yeah. a little bit of that story about it, and not only the story about how that came about, but your sort of current involvement, whether you do have any current involvement with it still. Yeah, what's well, still my shop? That so I'll clear that one up. Mm-hmm. Um, how did I get it by accident? Actually, because. It was 1978 and the squad for the World Cup had just been announced, the Scotland squad that was, um, because England, nobody else had qualified. So the Scotland squad took focus one week when they announced the squad. And I was keeping my fingers crossed that I would be in the squad because I played in every game leading up to it. But that still that still didn't make you a certainty to go because believe it or not, at the time, Scotland produced so many good players that... I wasn't certain to go. And the squad started off being picked was 80. So that day it was picked. It was picked in a squad of 80 Scottish players. But this was the final squad that the manager picked. And in the final squad at 25, I'd made it. So I was driving back from Old Trafford after receiving the news. Got to the top of um, uh, the road at Old Trafford. Turned right to go to Sale, where I used to live. And I noticed one of the shops where my fish and ship shop is now, I noticed one of them looked as if it was closed and I knew in previous days it hadn't been closed. So I pulled in, um, there was an elderly lady ran it and in charge of it. So I, was, I pulled in out of curiosity to start to see if she was okay and um, got in there and she was sitting in there on, on her own. She just closed the front door because she didn't feel all that well. And um, I asked her why she was closed and she said, didn't feel that well. I just had to say to her, if ever you're thinking of selling it, I'll buy it off you. And she says, right, you can buy it off me now. So I said, right, what do you want? And she gave me the price, which I won't tell you, because you'll laugh. Um, And that was it. Um, Decided I'd buy it and didn't have a a great idea there and then what I'd do with it. But I had my mother in Scotland and my family was in England because I'd come to Manchester United. And um, I decided I'd bring my mother down Open the fish and chip shop, she could run it. And um, before I went to the World Cup, I actually lost my mother and uh, never had a chance to to get her into the fish and chip shop. So I was then left with a fish and chip shop. So I've still got it because I won't sell it because it wasn't, it was never, I never intended to have it for myself. Uh, um, I rent it out to somebody who keeps, who runs it every week for me, looks after it. Um, and I just hope he looks after it good enough for the Manchester United faithful to want to go into it. And I hear okay things about it, so I'm quite happy. Yeah, I think it's almost part of the furniture at Old Trafford. I think it's it's just one of the things you see. It's just it's it's an ever present, and um, yeah, it's, it's I think it's a it's a fantastic part of this. Uh, it's not part of the stadium, 
but the the, no, surra- the, the surrounding part of it closest we can get to it. <laughs> yeah, so it's part of it, a really special place. But um, onto the football side of things now, and Manchester United, you obviously moved from Celtic, and I'm just thinking, put yourself in those shoes today. If a player goes from Celtic to Manchester United, this huge step up. However, back then you were Scottish champions, and I think you scored against Rangers in the Scottish Cup final. Celtic were a massive club, and still are a massive club now, but absolutely massive club. And coming to Manchester United, how did you view that in terms of a step up, step down, step sideways, in terms of your sort of career progression? Well, I'll, I'll start off at the very beginning because the system is completely different now when you're a youngster. The system when you're a youngster is, uh, if you're good enough, you, you join an academy. That's the first thing. Uh, there was no academies back then. I was invited, I was spotted by a Celtic scout, uh, and I was invited to train at Celtic Park for two years, two nights a week, Tuesday and Thursday. So for two nights, I accepted the invitation because I was a Celtic supporter. I'd watched them for about five, six, seven or eight years before that. I'd never seen them win anything because... They just couldn't, they didn't have a good enough team. But then a manager called Jock Steen came along, who was a good friend of Sir Alex Ferguson. And uh, he took over as a manager and Celtic started to win everything. And I eventually, after two years training on a Tuesday and Thursday night, I was invited to to join them on the ground staff uh, as a youngster, along with Kenny Dalgleish and one or two other uh, eventual well-known names. And the ground staff simply back then meant you cleaned the players' boots, you could put their kit out in the morning, uh, in the afternoon you did something around the stadium, whether it be paint the turnstiles or paint the, the railings on, but you, you, were, you were working most of the day and that's what it meant to be on the ground staff. Um, progress from the ground staff was actually getting into the, the reserve team at Celtic, which once you did that, you come off the ground staff I got into the reserve team and um, I, I previously had been putting the, the boots out and the, the, the shirts and the underpants and the shorts for the um, for the Lisbon Lions, they were called, because of the first British side to win the European Cup. Called the European Cup back then because you had to be champions of your country to play in it. Simple as that. Champions of Scotland, champions of England. Well, that's been devalued long time ago when... You get in the back door by finishing fourth, fifth sometimes, sixth sometimes, and they're even talking about this year, seventh qualifying. Well, just thank so, God it's not the Super League. You could have finished 16th and gone <laughs> Well, Super League's gone, finished. Um, so Celtic won it and deserved to win it, and the manager was a genius. Not a tactical genius because he didn't ever talk tactics. It was about you. It was about getting you fit. It was about you getting committed. I'm sort of painting the pattern here of, uh, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson, all the things that Sir Alex eventually got right at Old Trafford and, and decided that's how he would build his empire at Old Trafford. And, and like Celtic, where Jock Steen um, brought, uh, I think he brought along about eight of us at one time and we were called the Quality Street Gang. Uh, why we got that name, I'm not too sure, but it was a... It was a name of a number of kids who got together and, and made it. So we go back to Old Trafford, the class of 92. Sir Alex produced those, exact same as what we'd, we'd done at Celtic. Sir Alex then worked for Jock Steen back in the 80s. 
as a Scotland number two, Sir Alex was. Jock Steen was a Scotland manager. And um, having the view that Sir, the, the great manager that Jock was, um, when Sir Alex came to Old Trafford and, and I went down to the training ground and seen him train the players and watched how he operated, out on the pitch, I saw Jock Steen. I saw, not Sir Alex, I saw Jock Steen. He had he'd taken up all his methods, all the things that he, he decided that he was going to manage and how he was going to manage, and it was going to be about it was going to be about commitment, determination, focus, um, wanting to play for the club, all those things. Jock Steen instilled into myself and Dalgleish, and I've got to say, I saw the exact same as Sir Alex. Don't come to Manchester United if you if you're not fully focused. Don't come if you don't want to play for the club. And um, that's the way the two of them managed, identical. Um, so I, I, I was fortunate going to Celtic. I was in the right place at the right time with the right person. And it's the same as I'm sure all the, the class of 92 would admit to, that they were in the right place at the right time with, um, with Sir Alex at Old Trafford. Um Got into the team, got into the first team. Celtic mad, no intention of going anywhere. Back then, I didn't know if anybody thought it was any good because you didn't have agents telling you how great you were. You'd nobody. You were on your own. And um, and um, simply, I, I, I was on £50 a week. I'd gotten offered an extra £5 rise and it wasn't going to be enough for me. And Celtic wouldn't budge from the five pound because they said it was the policy of the club. I told the manager that um, that my father had died and I was going to have to look after my mother. And I've got a child on the way, and circumstances were changing. And I just plucked up the courage because it, it really did take courage, a bit like Sir Alex at Old Trafford, to even knock at his door. Same with Jock Steen. Unless you were ready for a battle of some kind. Don't knock at your door because you won't you won't win anyway. Uh, you were going to end up the loser. Um, so I plucked up the courage to knock at Mr. Steen's door and went in and told him. Came out with nothing as everyone did. Nobody came out with anything out of the office. And um, sat at home for a couple of weeks. Trained every day, but went home and sat at home and no phone call, no nothing. And um, I was getting a bit worried that nobody was interested in me. Uh, but I found out later no one was aware I was available. So I got a phone call from Jockstein one night. He said, get yourself ready in the morning. You're going to England. And before I could ask him where, he put the phone down on me. So car arrives in the morning. I have no idea where I'm going. And um, eventually I arrive at Liverpool uh, because Jockstein and Bill Shankly were the best of pals. Uh, I had no idea I was heading for Liverpool. I had no idea four hours later when I was in Bill Shankly's office that there was a contract waiting for me there. I had no idea that him and Jock Steen had got together and decided that Liverpool was where I was going and uh, with no say in the matter. And um, went to watch the game that was taking place that night, which was an FA Cup replay between Liverpool and Burnley. Watched the game... Director's box was full. One seat next to me was the only seat that was available. That was the only seat left. And um, right on kickoff, Paddy Crevin came in, sat down in the seat, assistant manager of Manchester United, ex-Celtic player, so he knew me. 
and uh, asked me what I was doing there. And I said, look, Pat, I'm supposed to be signing for Liverpool. And he said, well, we, we had no idea you were even available. Um, you, you can sign for us. And I had to remind Pat uh, that he wasn't the manager. I had to remind him that Tommy Doherty was the manager. And uh, so he went away and made a phone call, come back and said, I've spoken to the doc. He said, don't sign. Uh, we'll sign you tomorrow morning when you come out of Liverpool and, and go to back up to Manchester. Um, little did they know that, you know, I, I had a terrible problem in my hands. Not a problem to think about where I was going. As soon as Pat told me there was an interest, as soon as he told me that United would sign me, I was heading for Old Trafford. Because in my head was best law Charlton. United at the time were a poor team, weren't playing great. Liverpool were the best team in England. I was watching them. Uh, they, did, they demolished Burnley, no problem. They had Keegan and Toshak up front. And I'm thinking, why does Bill Shankly want me? He's got Keegan and Toshak. And there was other great players in midfield. Um, so, again, that was another deciding factor that I thought, well, I'll be able to get a regular game at Old Trafford because of the way the team is at the moment. Not so certain to get a regular game at Old Trafford. Uh, at uh, Liverpool, rather. Um, but I still had to go back and tell Bill Shankly that I wasn't going to sign. So... That's easier said than done. And I've got to be honest, I chickened out and I went back and I told them I needed time to think it over. Uh, I didn't tell the truth. I didn't need any time to think it over. I got up the next morning, got out of the hotel, went to Liverpool uh, train station and jumped on a train to Glasgow where Tommy Doherty was and um, and signed for Manchester United. Thank God for Paddy Crerant, a legend on and off the pitch. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Paddy. I, I remind them to this same. Well, just two more questions while we have you. Not running out of time, but I could talk to you for hours. But two more questions and topics. We had Willie, lucky enough to have Willie Morgan on the podcast a few weeks ago. And we're talking about, and we're discussing United fans are so proud of Premier League titles, 20 league titles, Sir Alex Ferguson, 13 league titles. But I look back at the history of Manchester United and how important sort of certain milestones were. And I look at winning the second division title. And I look at the importance of that because we, we see clubs who get relegated and they don't quite bounce back and then they s- almost sort of spiral out of control. You s- saw what happened to Leeds. They spent 15, 16 years out of the top flight. Yeah. And I just want your thoughts on that second division title and almost the feeling of importance throughout that season of immediately bouncing back. Um. When we went down, Tommy Doherty said to us all in the dressing room, uh, we'll be back. And we all thought, yeah, when, no boss, you know, that's the big thing. When will we be back? And he actually said, you'll be back next season. And typical of the doc, who was um, a wonderful character. Um, when I tell people what I thought Tommy's, Tommy Doherty's biggest strengths were uh, as a manager, I think they laugh at me sometimes. His biggest strength was he was funny. Very, very funny. If he came to your supporters club there in, in, you know, if he could come, he's, we've lost him now, if he could have come to your supporters club in Australia, he'd have entertained you for a week. You could have put Tommy Doherty's show on every night and he would have entertained you for a week. I guarantee people on the first night would have come back and they'd have come back. Um, and that is a strength in a manager because if you can keep players occupied in the dressing room or during the week, where he never, very seldom did he take training. He was just out there going around talking. He was very, very funny. He had a great relationship with the Manchester United chairman at the time, uh, Louis Edwards. 
So that relationship looked solid and it looked there forever and ever. Um, and in the dressing room on a Saturday at two o'clock, because we're all three o'clock kickoffs back then, at two o'clock when you met in the dressing room for the t- team announcement, and from two o'clock till three o'clock when the game started, he could entertain you in that dressing room and actually made you think, forget about there was an important game. And you were so relaxed that it worked. Now, in the modern day game, you won't hear of uh, managers, the importance of the managers being funny. You'll never hear that. It's all about the tactical side of it, the, the, the formation, the systems. I need to tell everybody that's seen Doherty, to an extent, Alex Ferguson, very little tactics, very little tactics involved. Um, it was about what you did. It was about building you up on a match day, telling you how good you were, telling you were better than the opposition, and now simply go out and win the game. So we set about the second division, trying to win obviously every game, trying to get back as quickly as we could, and found that after the first game when we went and won it, that um, that was more of that was to follow, and the confidence was, was there in the team, the attacking ability was in the team. Uh, we had two wingers, Gordon Hill and Steve Coppel. We had we had a forward line of Jimmy Green or Stuart Pearson, whoever else we had there at the time. We had plenty of midfield players. We had midfield players like myself and other other midfield players who bombed forward, liked to get goals. So we we were a team that was also never beaten in a game. If we were behind, we could come from behind and we could go on to win the game. That was the, that was the history of the, the second division. It happened and we got there and we got back. And when we got back, we had matured a bit more as well. And we were a better team in the, what well, it was called the first division at the time, the top division. Uh, we were a better team in the first division. No, it's interesting, the point you make there in terms of managers. And I remember my favourite manager I played under. And I think whenever you're at a good level, players know how to play the game, players understand the game. But a saying he always used to say pretty much every training session and every game, which still rings to me now, that tactics don't win games, men win games. And I think the importance of man management and just getting the best out of it, because, okay, it's a team game, football, but it's made up of individuals. You need to get the best out of every individual you have to create the best team. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you again about that because that's always been my belief. It's about the players. The tactical side of it is is nonsense. It's nonsense, absolute nonsense about we did this and we did that and there was a man in a hole. You've heard that one about somebody in a hole, haven't you? And there was a false number nine. I don't know what that false number nine is either. But um, no, those those managers built you up and built you built the team up into being a, a team that was was going to do certain things. Went to Wembley, just reminded me, went to Wembley in 1976. Won't have to remind all the supporters there, but lost to Southampton. Um, biggest shock probably in, if not one of the biggest shocks in FA Cup history, but everyone sort of underestimated Southampton. They'd just gone in the two names, Southampton, Manchester United, but the Southampton team was full of good players, exceptionally good players. So we came on stock, dress room at Wembley after the game. It was like, it was terrible. Tommy Doc breezes in. Don't worry, lads, you'll be back next year to Wembley and next year you'll win it. Once again, we all thought he was nuts. Because to get to an FA Cup final alone, you've got to have a little bit of luck 
You've got to have the luck of the draw. You've got to play well when those games come around. You want as many home draws as you can get. You don't want to be playing away back then. And then you need to get there. And then you need to win. Of course, we did get there. We did win. It was Liverpool, so it was even better. And that was, again, the manager. Before we went to Wembley that day in the hotel, before we left, he said again in front of all the players, what did I tell you all last year? And, of course, we remembered what he told us. Well, boss, you said that uh, we'd go back there, we're here, and you said we'd win it. Well, that's what we've got to do now. And I think when we got on the bus, I think even though it was Liverpool and it was the best Liverpool team ever, uh, that's what people were saying, that uh, I think we felt by the time we arrived at Wembley Stadium, we were going to win, and all because of something he'd said 12 months earlier. Well, it's like you've got my notes in front of you. Just for this last point, just on that FA Cup final, just two things, just to finish off the podcast. One, the goal. Do you, t- do you tell people that you scored it, even though technically <laughs> it's coming off Jimmy Green off it? It's one of those ones, it's still your goal. And also, beyond the goal, what you just mentioned there, Liverpool, and almost the importance from a Manchester United point of view, the importance of denying them the treble. Like, did that play a part in the sort of build-up well, and yeah, your motivation? That, that, that obviously was always Manchester United, Liverpool. Winning that was a bit like beating Rangers when I was a Celtic player. If you could beat Rangers... Um, it was it was it was a must. It was a must. Now we played Liverpool this weekend, yeah. And people say to me, "Well, what's going to happen?" I say, "Well, it's completely different now. It's completely different. Back in that game, I, I don't know about Liverpool, but I certainly know about us. We didn't have one foreign player, so we knew we all knew the importance of the game. Didn't have to be. We didn't have to have the manager telling us the importance of the game. We knew." With everybody in the team being British, if you check the Liverpool team, I think they were all, apart from maybe, I don't know if Jan Molby, but they might have been, or Bruce Grobelas, one of them might have played. But again, it would be there would be 10 out of the 11 players were, were British. Mm. Um, I don't think foreign players coming in nowadays, I don't really think they understand the importance of the game to to a Manchester United supporter or, or a Celtic supporter up in Scotland. I think it's talked to, they talk, they talked about it during the week in the build-up to the game, but not being around that sort of atmosphere for, for years and years, I don't, I don't think they really grasp. So people ask me about Sunday and people say, how do you think it'll go? And I say what I've always said, well, depends on what the players do, that's for certain. And it depends how many of them it's registered, how important the game is to, to Manchester United supporters. And of course, Wembley that day, we realised the importance and I was there another, I was at United for 11 years and for the 11 years I was there, in no time did I ever forget the importance of a, of a Match United-Liverpool game because having played in Celtic Rangers old firm games, I realised what the importance of that was and, and as a Celtic supporter, you had to win and as a Manchester United supporter, you had to win that Match United-Liverpool game. Um, things have changed, and that's another one of the changes. The foreign influx into the game in our in our Premier League has, has changed things around slightly. Mm. Yeah, definitely. But um, just on that, if we can quickly go back to wrap up. Is it Lou Macari's goal or Jimmy Green? Oh, Green-off's sorry, goal? I forgot about that. Now, let me just tell you, when you're at Wembley, there's a hundred thousand people there, which there was back in the time, and you're in on the, and you're in that midfield area, and you jump up on the halfway line and you head the ball on to wherever it went to, 
All I know is that I, as I would normally do, I flicked it on and then headed for the penalty box. I was desperate to get to see what was happening. The ball sort of fell for me in the penalty box. I shouted to Jimmy Greenoff, get out of the way, Jimmy. Jimmy turned his back sideways. I shot, hit off his chest. Ray Clements went that way. The ball went that way and it ended up in the most important place in the back of the net. So when people ask me who scored it, I, I say, well, there was a bit of me and there was a bit of Jimmy, but it doesn't matter who scored it. It was the importance of the goal eventually was the main thing that mattered. And it still to this day was the main thing. Right, definitely. Manchester United scoring a winner over Liverpool. Doesn't matter who doesn't matter who it scores it. But we'll, we'll, for the purpose of this podcast, we'll say it's a Lou Macari goal. Lovely. But on that, I think that is a good way to finish the podcast. And again, um, I urge everyone to go back and listen to the official Man United podcast Lou Macari did uh, a while ago now. But um, also follow him on Twitter and just do a little bit of research about the fantastic work he is doing at the Macari Centre. Um, I use the word a lot at the start of the podcast. But it is truly inspirational. So I urge everyone to go and do a little bit of research on there. And um, Lou, just from the, from our listeners, the podcast listeners, but also the supporters club here in New South Wales, um, first of all, thank you for your playing career. And also thank you thank for you. the continual good work you do, or whether it be on MUTV or wherever. It is always good to have a legend just sort of always in and around the club and sharing stories like these. Um, they're priceless for fans like myself and the other listeners. If ever I'm going anywhere, if I'm going to Australia somewhere, I'll definitely come and see you. No, the other thing that puts me off is that 24 hours. It's not got shorter, has it? Is it still 24 hours? Yeah, it's about that. But I'm just thinking the time difference. It's um, about 11.30 your time now. So I'm just about to have to set the alarm. We're recording this on the eve of the Roma match. And it's um, right, I've set yeah. the alarm for 4.45am for this one. So it's a little bit of a tricky one on a Friday right, morning. Yeah. <laughs> But, Thanks um, very much. No, thank you very much. So I urge everyone to go follow Lou Macari on Twitter. We'll put his link in our bio and um, obviously subscribe to the podcast. Um, make sure you're following us on all your social medias. And um, have a good one, people. See ya. Thank you.